Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a sunny autumn day here in the capital is Dr. Leslie Drake. Leslie is the Executive Director of the Partnership for Child Development, an organisation based at Imperial College London, which is committed to improving the education, health and nutrition of school-aged children and youths in low and middle income families. Um, Leslie, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure for us to welcome you onto the airwaves with us as well. Um, normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But to what extent has it affected you and your work? Well, on, on many different levels, uh, actually. Uh, on a personal level, I contracted, and my husband contracted COVID in March. So mm. I ended <laughs> I was in bed for a month, and two months of that following, following that recovery. Um, my father died of COVID in the summer, so I, I, I feel personally engaged with it on a on a on a family basis. But on a work basis, it it really is strange times that we're living in. And I think the key thing for me is the closure of the schools. Uh, And I'll take this from where I really work is low and middle income countries, but I see the the effect globally in terms of what that's, how that's affecting the children in our, in our care. Um, In Africa, the, the, the closing of the schools has really made a difference. Um, it, it feels like we've made three steps forward and 20 million back because the, with the closing of the schools, the only reason, for example, that the only meal that the children got during the day was the school meal that was provided with government funds, but with, you know, the evidence-based contextual advice that PCD would give to the government. And so with that, what we saw was that the the kids were not getting fed. But a a key thing to me is that the the girls were not, the girls were not, one of the reasons that the girls were in school was not just primary but secondary education was a key success, a key move forward in in terms of, of the education position. But with the girls being out of school, we're seeing that the girls are not returning, even if schools are are uh, opening, reopening. But they're also back on the on getting married and having children. So we know we're not going to get the girls back into school, even if the the, the schools do eventually reopen. And I think that's a huge back. It, it, it's just such a negative impact that COVID has had. 
on the education of not just the girls, but the boys as well, but especially in terms of how we've been trying to, to push the educate, education agenda and the nutrition agenda. And so we're, we're really at battle at the moment with how do we... How do we move policy? How do we influence policy to make sure that we we move forward in a positive way, a constructive way, using the evidence and opinions about COVID in terms of making sure we, we take better care, as, as good a care as we can of the health, education, nutrition of children, especially in low and middle income countries, but not excluding the UK. Mm, exactly and uh even though eventually when we do hopefully have a working vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an issue just because of the prolonged anxiety that this is likely to cause can you see some of the existing restrictions maybe being in place for quite some time and maybe almost there being a covid hangover over education worldwide as a result of this and it will take some time to come back to how it was absolutely uh, you know, I, I've been in discussions with governments, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, about how how they might handle this and how do they get their, you know, their, their children back into primary and secondary education, as well as, as I mentioned, not just the males or the females. And it, nobody quite knows, it's, it's an unknown context, so nobody quite knows what to do. And there are obviously um, parents and children and teachers that are worried about all of all of the implications of COVID and how do we deal with that, um, especially with some of the most vulnerable children and some of the special needs schools, especially. Is you know what can we guide? How how do we advise about how to move forward post COVID and what, what does post COVID mean? Now, I think that it's going to be around for a long while. And I think you have to adjust to, you have to adjust to a system that now has to deal with this COVID underlying issue. I could certainly and see quite frankly, I don't, mm. I quite frankly don't have the answers. And I think we have to work together to have a look at alternatives and options and see what works and I think what works will be different in different contexts. Mm. Again, I can certainly see where you're coming from from uh, that point of view uh, for sure. And just thinking about the effects that the pandemic has thus far had on sort of mental health and well-being. I think it is important that solutions very much put that at the heart of things because with education having come back um, in the UK, as we've seen um, in September, um, it's going to have a tremendous impact on the well-being of uh, pupils and a lot more of the vulnerable pupils that have come back and maybe haven't been as privileged to have access to online resources and technical resources as their sort of peers have had. It's going to be very difficult for them to actually catch up to the level that they should be at so the education sector is really going to have a lot on its plate over the uh, the next few months yeah and I, th- I think nail on the head there is is leveling the playing field again mm. because some some kids just don't have access to that and when we're looking at you know learning in the home there's some parents that, co- that can quite well um, teach their kids at home and there's other parents that can't so where where are those children you know where how how are they being 
dealt this blow. And I must, I must say, you know, I really felt for the kids of this examination year. You know, when you look at the, you know, how can you deal? And I, I was reflecting on my own education. I'm thinking, well, how would I have dealt with that when it's my O levels or my A levels or whatever they call it these days? My degree, and I'm, I'm virtually learning. I I don't have access to a teacher in face to face and everything. Virtual learning is one thing, but how how much are we losing in terms of the kids? One not having access to the the equipment and and necessary virtual um, needs, but you know also just the physical interaction. You know. Mm. You know, how does that work? And, you know, we're all isolating in our own homes and it's taking away something from the the social interaction that kids need with not just the the the, 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 the teachers, but also with their, their peer group. And, you know, if they're challenged by an educational question or a health question, nutrition question, who's looking after them? Mm. Who's listening to those? those questions coming from the kids and when it comes to that remote transition of doing everything and leading from a distance leading from afar how has that been for yourself personally and the team of people that you work with have you found that to be quite an easy transition or has that been a little bit of a challenge well Scott to be to be honest so that um the, the main challenge my, my job in, in, entails a lot of um international travel and you you can't beat a face to face discussion with somebody about what's really going on how how do we interact how do we uh, move forward but um and so that's been a bit of a challenge and also not seeing my team physically is also trying to understand where people are coming from in terms of their personal well-being, health, all of the things that we're all careful and mindful of. Um, and so that's the negative. But the positive, I think there's been a lot of progression in terms of how we do all of this Zoom and Skype and uh, everything, in terms of how do we develop those systems to actually work. And to some extent, I, I think we, we've made we've made huge advances forward, but I can't help but think that you know, on one hand, we're saving lots of money by not flying everybody around, not having international conferences, not having all of these country visits, um, and that's something I think we should really reflect on and see how we strengthen the system to be able to work like that. But also, you know, how are we communicating? You know, are we communicating as effectively as we were when we were meeting each other physically in the different in the different countries in the different meetings? And so I think there's got there's going to be a lot of reflection about what's been good. Uh, what positives have come out of this this pandemic and what are the negatives and how do we fix that? 
And that discussion is going to be so, so important going forward. You're absolutely right, because it is imperative that we do learn lessons and take some positives from this experience for all of us. Now, um, our time together on the programme, Leslie, I am conscious is beginning to draw to a close. But before we do wrap things up, I really would like to talk about the future because we know the new normal for the here and now is going to be here to stay, perhaps until the spring, perhaps maybe longer. But as we continue to get to grips with that and the challenges that it brings... What is it that you're really hoping to achieve at the Partnership for Child Development? And indeed, where do you see yourselves in a year's time, by which point hopefully we'll have a working vaccine and we can start to focus on the long-term future beyond COVID? Well, looking to the positive, I hope we do find a vaccine. But I, I, I think I'll just go back to my my previous point about just learning from it, you know. Um how is it that we, we can structure ourselves? What what were the weaknesses to begin with and what were the strengths and how do we move forward? I think COVID is going to be around for a, a, a long while. Um, not that it's my area of expertise, but uh, I think we have to really sit down and think about how how we how we work for the next year. And one of the things that we've been doing at the Partnership for Child Development is developing some papers, um, research papers, with as much evidence as we have, working with governments in low- and middle-income countries, looking at what the options are, and putting them out as reflective pieces, policy pieces, and hopefully getting some feedback and some quality feedback from other people that might have differing views. I think... The one thing I would I would say is that there needs to be a bigger table. There needs to be more people working together to actually say, okay, well, I think this is working. That's definitely not working. How do we move forward? And I think it's very contextual. And I think we need to work with the governments in the different countries, including our own, to actually see how we might move forward, given the lessons we've already learned. And what lessons do we still need to learn, and how do we you know, work on this, work on strengthening the system? Because leadership fundamentally is all about learning and developing. It's a constant process of development and improvement. We are never a finished article. And that is something that the COVID-19 situation has really reminded us of. We have to keep learning lessons and we have to keep on getting better. Um, Leslie, I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto our show today. It's a shame we don't have more time on the air. Otherwise, we could talk about this long into the afternoon, I'm sure. But I have to say, <laughs> just given how enlightening it's been, um, having you join us today i think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on our show just to see how far we have come as a country in the time between well it's been an absolute pleasure scott and uh let's do keep in touch and see see what lessons we have learned and what we still need to learn (laughs) exactly right uh, as as a community certainly there are plenty of lessons there that we have to learn and that we must take heed of going forward and uh, most importantly until we do hopefully speak again and please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on in the world as well you too take I would- care. 
take care, Leslie. And I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Dr. Leslie Drake onto today's show, Executive Director of the Partnership for Child Development at Imperial College London. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as serving in a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. Lord Blunkett has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015, and I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are 
now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, 
I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or 
public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. 
And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of, thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the 
scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition 
nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.